You are listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Almost one year ago, the Food and Drug Administration approved the human papillomavirus vaccine, which is proven to be effective in protecting against two of the viruses that cause 70% of all cervical cancers and two other viruses that cause 90% of all genital warts. The latest research findings on the efficacy of the HPV vaccine is the topic of this clinician's roundtable. Welcome, I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Atlanta is my guest, Dr. Kevin Alt, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Emory University School of Medicine and one of the authors of a recent article in the New England Journal of Medicine on the HPV vaccine, Welcome, Dr. Alt. Thank you for having me. Well, Dr. Alt, your latest study certainly had some encouraging results. But before we discuss the findings, let's begin with just a basic overview of the human papillomavirus and why it's important that there be a vaccine against it. Well, the human papillomavirus is somewhat unique in the scheme of things because it's a virus that's so closely associated with cancer. We know about 20% of human cancers have an underlying infectious disease, but this link is especially tight for this particular problem. Nearly 100% of women with cervical cancer are going to have a human papillomavirus infection. And testing for cervical cancer is done with a pap test. What kind of test is performed to detect HPV? Well, here in the United States, we only have one commercially available test to test for HPV. And the clinical situations in which you would use that are relatively limited. It's also a panel test. So you would test for a whole series of the dozen or so types of HPV that cause cervical cancer. In your most recent study, you found the vaccine was nearly 100% effective in preventing two types of the virus. Can you explain those findings? There are two articles taken together in that issue of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I was an investigator on one of the articles. But together, there are 15,000 women enrolled in those studies, and there are three-year results that is why it's new and interesting. What we found was, as you said, 98% protection against precancerous strains of cervical dysplasia in the study I was involved with, and the other study was 100% for the cervical dysplasia, the premalignant disease of the cervix. So the, the news continued to be good, I think, was the headline. Right. And you were looking at specifically two types of the virus. Two of the four types, as you start out by saying, 16 and 18, these viruses are numbered, are what's in the quadrivalent version of the vaccine. This vaccine, Merck's Gardasil, is the first vaccine designed specifically to prevent cancer. How many people are exposed to HPV? And of those, do you know how many will develop cancer? There are lots of recent statistics along that line. I think you could probably sum them up by saying that almost everybody that's sexually active gets exposed to human papillomavirus infections. So there was a nice article in the Journal of the American Medical Association in the past few months by Eileen Dunn and some other researchers at the CDC, and they did a cross-sectional study that said about 25% of American women had a current HPV infection. There are some studies that are older than that. that are longitudinal that indicate after about three years of sexual activity, about 50% of women have been exposed to HPV. As you kind of alluded to, most men and women that get an HPV infection don't develop cancer. In the absence of screening, the best guess that we have is about 2 to 4% of people that get exposed to HPV go on to get a cancer. So it's certainly not 100%, and most of these HPV infections will resolve without any 
clinical sequela. Mm-hmm. So most are not treated. Is it important that they try to treat them? Well, what we're really interested in is disease, of course. And so the, the disease, again, I'm a gynecologist, as you started out by saying, uh, the disease that OBGYNs get most involved with are abnormal pap smears and cervical dysplasia and genital warts. And certainly a majority of those type of problems are going to be caused by one of the four types that are in this vaccine. Let's talk about one of the criticisms of the vaccine's impact on precancer rates. The risk of precancerous lesions was reduced in the study from 1.5% to 1.3% among some of the women that you studied. Can you address this criticism? Well, early on in the study, we decided, for, for better or for worse now in retrospect, that we were going to vaccinate everybody who came in the door, who were, was in the age range, the 16 to 26 age range, who had a limited number of partners and no prior abnormal pap smears. And the reason we decided to do it that way is we thought that's how it would be done if the vaccine ever made it to market. And of course, we made these decisions eight or 10 years ago. We did not pre-screen anybody. We did not rule anybody out who had an existing HPV infection. So we were vaccinating women who may have had an infection with 16 or 18, two of the types in the vaccine. So, of course, those people didn't receive any benefit from getting the vaccine. They didn't have any harm done is an important finding as well. Also, 16 and 18, the two types that are closely associated with cervical cancer, cause about 70% of cervical cancer. So we're really not doing much for the 30% that may have 31, 45, 35, and some of the other 8 or 10 that also cause cancer. So those two effects taken together, you know, in the first few years are going to blunt the effectiveness of the study. The longer you follow the women in the study, the more effect you're going to see. Mm -hmm. You said for better or worse, you designed the study a long time ago. Do you think that the findings, because you included these women who had been exposed to the virus, do you think that this is confusing maybe public perception of the effectiveness of the vaccine? It is very confusing. So you have groups saying, you know, we shouldn't be giving this to young women before they've been exposed. And you have other groups saying, well, you know, only adults can make a decision about this, but it may not be as effective in people that have prior exposure. So it has muddled the waters quite a bit, I think, over the past few weeks. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest is Dr. Kevin Alt, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Emory University School of Medicine. And we are talking about his recent article on the HPV vaccine in the New England Journal of Medicine. You mentioned the four types of HPV vaccine that the vaccine targets. Will future versions of the vaccine include other types of the virus? Well, there is a version of an HPV vaccine at the U.S. FDA right now awaiting approval. GlaxoSmithKline makes a bivalent version of an HPV vaccine. It contains 16 and 18 in it, and they submitted their FDA application at the end of March. There's been speculation about what would be a good second-generation vaccine, even a year into this vaccine effort, the first-generation vaccine. Certainly adding more types is appealing because you could get that 30% that you haven't covered previously. Also, there are other pieces, other genes of the HPV genome that people have used for 
therapeutic vaccines. And so to get around the criticism of uh, this vaccine only prevents disease, which of course almost all vaccines are made to prevent things, you might be able to mix pieces of the HPV genome and get a vaccine that is a combined prophylactic and therapeutic vaccine. That's usually called chimeric vaccine. But it's been interesting, you know, having been involved in these studies for a long time, it seems like there's a lot more interest in the therapeutic aspect of uh, taking care of HPV. Why do you think that is? Well, I think because of the outstanding efficacy of this first prophylactic vaccine. And so people are ambitious for more. They want more. Well, that's always been, you're getting away from my area of expertise a little bit, but we've always wanted to have a vaccine for cancer. And so I think that this is the first one, as you stated, that was specifically designed to stop a cancer. Of course, we have hepatitis B vaccine that's been around for a few decades that would stop some liver cancers. But the connection between HPV and cervical cancer is very tight. That's the main public health advantage to giving this vaccine is to prevent cervical cancer. Right. The vaccine in the study was administered in three doses. Why is this necessary and how did you promote compliance on the part of those in the study to follow through with all of the doses? We were looking at women in their late adolescence and college age, which is a very mobile population. So, And I thought we had pretty good compliance with that. Of course, you usually would compensate patients who volunteer to be in these long, massive trials. You know, you would do about everything to get them to come to their visits. There is a modified intent to treat analysis in the paper in the New England Journal of Medicine where people may have not followed the protocol exactly as we had in mind, but the results were robust in the modified intent to treat analysis as well. So if you could target the younger females, you probably would have an even easier time if the parents are bringing them? There are lots of reasons to think about the lower end of the age range. As you know, the advisory committee on immunization practices made at ages 9 to 26. So I have daughters in that age range. And so my 10-year-old daughter has a doctor. She has other vaccines she's due for. There's meningococcal, a pertussis vaccine, and a recommendation for hepatitis A now. So she has Lots of vaccines to catch up on, unfortunately for her. She has health insurance, and if she didn't have health insurance, she'd be covered by the Vaccines for Children's Fund. So there are lots of reasons to aim at that lower age range other than just prior exposure. Let's talk about males for a minute here. Men can be infected with HPV and promote its spread, but what are the health risks to infected men? Most penile cancers do contain HPV DNA. Of course, penile cancer is much rarer than vulvar cancer, vaginal cancer, cervical cancer, some of the women's cancers that are associated with HPV. You know, again, as a gynecologist, men are the vectors to a certain extent. They don't have quite the same health consequences of abnormal pap smears and premalignant change that women do. So the main reason really to vaccinate men would be to prevent them from giving it to women. Of course, genital warts, although it's not a pre-malignant lesion, is not much fun for the people who have that problem. It can be challenging to treat. It's expensive, has a lot of social stigma associated with it. Those trials are ongoing, and the vaccine is not currently indicated by the FDA for men in this country, but we may know in the next few years about that. So there are trials being conducted on boys and men? There are trials. You know, again, being a gynecologist, I'm not involved in those trials, but uh, there are trials going on, and hopefully in the next year or two we'll know 
about the results of those trials. And in your opinion, you would like to see probably males also vaccinated so that they're not spreading it. There's a historical analogy we could look back at. In the 70s and 80s, both Britain and Sweden had a single gender vaccination program for rubella, and uh, they were trying to vaccinate girls and seronegative women at delivery to uh, try to get rid of congenital rubella, so which is, uh, you know, arguably the worst thing that can happen in a rubella infection. And they were not very successful, to be honest with you, because there was always these carriers out there, the boys, you know, that could infect the infect the susceptible women. So both countries found it necessary to get away from the single gender vaccine. Mm -hmm. So in the future, this may be an important part of it. Perhaps. You know, you'd like to see some efficacy data in the men and boys. We have seen safety data, but no efficacy data. Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Kevin Alt, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Emory University School of Medicine. Thank you, Dr. Alt. Thank you for having me. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. 